registration form that's in your uh, welcome packet. Sign up to be a part of a small group. Those groups start this week, and so uh, dive right in. Find a group that meets at a time that works for you and your family, and and uh, there's lots of sermon-based uh, groups that are meeting, and, and uh, for sure a great way for you to kind of reconnect with the the message from the Sunday before and to kind of unpack it a little more. And uh, so just uh, be a part of one of those groups. Our groups here at Wallula are always open. Uh, and so uh, if you don't sign up this week, uh, you can still be a part of those groups at any time. Uh, just jump in and be involved. But it really, uh, it, it doesn't seem to always work that way. And so I, I would just encourage you to uh, jump in and decide to be a part uh, register for one of those groups, uh, get connected with the small group leader, and uh, just uh, get get involved in one of those groups uh, this semester here at Wallula Christian Church. A great way to build friends, a great way to study God's Word together. It'll make a difference in your life uh, this fall semester uh, here at Wallula. Be a part of one of those groups. Uh, this last week, Sherry and I, my wife Sherry, and I celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. And Yeah. Give Sherry a round of applause because that's a long time, right? That's a, that's a tough deal. And she uh, put this picture on uh, social media. Maybe some of you saw this picture when, uh, when uh, yeah, Sherry looks the same. Uh, I'm older and fatter, and that's how that works. But uh, there's a picture of our wedding day, and uh, uh, that was a great day. And she said, happy anniversary. And then she used three words to describe uh you know, who she was wishing a happy anniversary to. And these words, she said he, he was selfless and he was a provider and he made life fun. And I thought that is a weird, really weird description, you know, that she would put that on and have this secret affair for 20 years, right? And I'm just finding out about it because, you, you know, let's be honest. I mean, Sherry has been married to me for 20 years and so she knows that there have been plenty of times in those 20 years when I've been selfish and not selfless. She knows that over the course of that 20 years, that at the very least, provision is a relative term. She knows that I, there's plenty of times when I'm just as grumpy as I am fun. You know, and I just re was reminded of that, of that picture on Facebook. You know, on Facebook, we tend to, you know, when, when our kids' ball team loses 20 to 1, that photo doesn't tend to make the cut. You know, where there's sort of one side of the picture that we often get from social media, and we get to decide which side of that it is or not. It reminds me of an old story about a, a little boy in Sunday school class, and uh, the Sunday school teacher said, hey, we're going to draw a picture right now, and so they had some time to draw a picture, and she went around to each of the kids and, and asked, hey, what, what are you drawing? This one little boy said, I'm drawing God. And the Sunday school teacher said, well, how are you doing that? You know, nobody knows what God looks like. And the little boy drew a little, a little bit more, and he, he looked at his picture, and he looked at his Sunday school teacher, and he said, well, they do now. <laughs> right? Here he, here he is, huh? And, and I wonder if that's not how we approach God, at least some of the time. And throughout history, is that how people have sort of approached God? We, we kind of take the, the 
half of the picture or some of the picture or we we kind of put God into this box that makes sense to us. I wonder if that's why, you know, as as Moses leads Israel out of captivity in Egypt, they decide, man, we're going to build this this golden calf to worship instead of God. Is it because they missed the good things that God had done for them? Is it because they, they, they really weren't faithful enough? They didn't have enough faith to believe in a God that they couldn't see? Or is it because when they built that golden calf, they said, man, we know that we are bigger than this God we'll worship. We know that this God that we can worship will make sense to us. You know, so often we sort of approach God and we, we approach him just with that, that part of him that, we, that comforts us in that moment or that part of him that makes sense to us in that, that, that time and place in our life or just that part that we think we can manage well enough in our life. But when you read through scripture, you read about a God who is too big to be put into a box. He's too big to just completely understand. He's a God of creation. This, this God that's described in Scripture in Genesis, it's a God who, who is described as creating the universe in six days. That's a big God. It's a God who, who looks down, and, and for whatever reason, as his creation sort of runs rampant, he decides, I've got to start over, and he sends this flood. And he rescues his creation through Noah and his family. He's a God who, who, who uh, allows a, a, a person, a, a man who, who was scared to speak in public, to lead hundreds of thousands of people out of slavery. He's a God who, who grew that nation from, from this little old couple who didn't have any kids. He's a God who, who enters this world as a man who leaves paradise to be born an infant who grows and, and teaches and ministers and ultimately dies in our place on a cross. But his story doesn't even end there. He's raised from the dead on that third day. Scripture describes this big, big, big God. And this morning we're going to take a look at a tiny part of that scripture, of his word. And I think it'll help us to understand. It'll, it'll teach us three truths to help us have a better picture of that big God. We can have a more complete picture of God. And I think the prophet Malachi teaches us three truths in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, through the fifth verse of chapter 3 of the book of Malachi. He teaches us three truths that will help us to have a more complete picture of who our God is. If you have your Bibles, I'd love, you to, love for you to open them up to the book of Malachi. It's at the very end of the Old Testament. Right before you get to the Gospels, you'll find the book of Malachi. We're going to start at the very end of chapter 2. We're going to work our way through the first five verses of chapter 3. If you're using, uh, you know, your phone or some kind of a, a device to uh, read scripture this morning, you can find the outline on the YouVersion app. Uh, even better than that, you can find the outline on the Wallula app. And so if you haven't downloaded the Wallula app, take some time today and do that. One of the neat things about that Wallula app is that you'll also find the small group questions for uh, your small group. If you're in a, a, a sermon-based small group, then you'll find those questions on that app. And so you can kind of uh, 
you can go through those on your own. You can prepare for that small group meeting. You know, you can check in on your small group leader and make sure they're doing their job and all that stuff. Or, or just get ready to uh, see what, where we're going with that section of scripture in the small group. Malachi chapter 2, beginning with verse 17. This is what God's word says. Three truths to having a better, more complete picture of who God is. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or or where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against the sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud uh, laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows of the fatherless, who deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord God Almighty. All right, so three truths that are taught here. Truth number one is that God's standards do not change. God is a God of standards. And, and even as we begin unpacking this, we can look back through his word and realize, you know, what, what is the standards that God has? It's, it's God's law. And so if, if you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, you can read uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments, right? The, these big ten of, of his law that he, uh, that he gives to his people in, in Deuteronomy chapter 5. You'll read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth or beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of sin of the fathers for the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses the name. Observe the Sabbath. Verse 16 says, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. Verse 17, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or property. And so God's law kind of broken up into the the first half of focusing on him and and then the second half focusing on relationships. And and we learn a little bit more about that in in, uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 5, that it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then following with verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 12, that says, If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. There's this, these standards that God has for his people that he set, and they, they don't change. They haven't changed. And so we, we come to verse 17, and it says, You have wearied, in, in chapter 2 of the book of Malachi, and it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. 
You know, it's sort of an, an amazing, awesome sort of realization that we can, we can kind of weary God, that God can grow tired of our words. Now, that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Uh, just last week, this, this uh, grandmother stopped me on the, she was in the, on the way to worship. She was walking into this very room, and she said, Lance, I just got to warn you, I had grandkids over this weekend, I am so tired. And I said, hey, I won't, you know, get a few winks in there, I won't hold it against you, right? I, I get it, you know, words can be wearisome. Huh? There was a study done, done a long time ago where, where the study said that, uh, you know, the women and men use different amounts of words in a day. And the study concluded that women use about 13,000 words in a day and men use somewhere around 7,000 words in a day. That study was sort of debunked recently with a new study that concluded that men and women all use about the same number of words on average. You know, there's, there's of course an average and some people speak more, use more words and some people speak less. In this study, they found that the, uh, the folks involved, that the person who used the fewest number of words in one day and the person who used the most number of words in one day were both men. And on one end of the spectrum, this guy spoke 700 words in one day. That doesn't seem like very many to me. And on the other end, this guy used, uh, used over 20,000 words in one day. And they concluded that everybody, on average, uses somewhere between 10 and 13,000 words to communicate throughout the day. The most interesting part of the study to me was that of those 10 to 13,000 words used, the words that really were meaningful, that, that gave uh, supplied information for what was needed to happen in that day, were under 1,000. I mean, we can understand, we can kind of figure out how words can be wearisome, especially when we sort of hear the same thing over and over, and especially when they don't, when they're not true, when those words don't have real meaning. And so when, when verse 17 begins, you have wearied the Lord with your words, you know, Israel responds by saying, how have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? All who do evil are, are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. You know, sometimes we weary God because uh, we don't, we, we understand that God is a God of, of, of standards and that he's, he has his law and he said, this is the way you ought to live. And even when we understand that direction he's calling or leading us in, we, we figure that, you know, that's not for me. That's not what I want to do. And so we choose a different path and we ignore him and we weary God when we say, hey, the path that we choose when we're selfish and we say, I want to go my own direction, when we dis just decide that, no, that's right. That's what God would have me do. When we just say out loud that this is, this is righteousness, that this is godly. You know, it's a little bit, I was having a conversation with my son the other day. He said, hey, Dad, can I go out and I, I want to go and do this? And I said, yeah, probably that's fine. And I looked at the clock and I was figuring, when, when does he need to be home? And I said, hey, Clayton, I think you, you probably ought to be home by 11. But I know you asked me because, you know, kids figure out, right, who's, 
the nice parent, you know, who's going to say whatever, and has, we have different standards a little bit. I shouldn't have said that Sherry's not the nice parent. I'm going to, that's not what I meant, all right? Let the record show. But we have different standards as parents even, right? And, and kids figure that out pretty quickly, huh? And so dad's going to say, hey, be home by 11. That's all right. And I said, but, you know, you're going to leave, and mom's going to say, where are you going? And you're going to answer, and then she's going to say, be home. She'll probably say, be home by 1030. You're just going to have to live with that. All right, and so he leaves, and he walks out, and he has a conversation with his mom. And his mom asks, where are you going? And he tells her, he says, when, when are you going to be home? And, and she said, why don't you be home by 1030? And he said, but dad said 11. See, that's not really the standard that was set, huh? Just obey your mother was the standard that was set. But we decided, oh, we like this one better. We like this better. And that's probably okay. We can make a list. I know I can make a list. We can make a list in our lives of the things that we sort of rationalize by saying, yeah, but God. Yeah, but. You didn't really mean this for me. You don't really know what I've experienced. You don't really know that this would make, this just makes things much easier, right? And we kind of rationalize down just like we rationalize the, the standard of our, of our curfew or what have you. It wearies God when we say, we're going to do what we want, but we'll call it godly. You know, and, and sometimes, the, to be fair to the Israelites, they're asking, where is the God of justice? Because when we look around the world, right, and we can see that sometimes the unrighteous prosper and the righteous struggle. And we say, how in the world is that fair? Where is, where is the God of justice? We're still experiencing and dealing with this today, all the time. I, my heart was broken this last week when my my, my my daughter looked across at me at lunch and said, Dad, why does all this bad stuff happen? It's just been a week for my kids where they, they had a, a friend who was in a diving accident and he may not ever walk again. He's in the hospital right now. And it's just a terrible situation for he and his family to deal with. My kids had a friend who was, you maybe saw on the news about this church van, this accident, rollover accident, and uh, three young people died in that accident. Their friend has two broken legs and some internal injuries, and he's in the hospital. And my daughter had another friend who luckily wasn't injured in a, a one-car accident that she was involved in. But just sort of all this stuff that happened in the same time period, and it, it left Lacey asking this question, why is all this bad stuff happening? What's going on? And man, I wish, I wish, there's been so many times in my life as, as a pastor, as a husband, as a dad, as a friend, when I've wanted a better answer to that question. Why does this bad stuff happen? And the only answer I have, the only answer I have is that we live in a fallen, broken world. That when you go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and you see sin enter the world, and then there's a consequence to that sin. 
That doesn't make every bad thing that happens a direct consequence to some particular sin. But it does mean that the penalty of sin in this life, in this world, is death. That our world is broken. That it's not the perfect design that God had and has in store for us. I can only point to to verses like like Matthew uh, chapter 5 and say, you know, Jesus, Jesus told us that this is, this is how it would be in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, 44. He said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and, send rain, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That in this broken world, sometimes the rain will fall on the just and the unjust alike. And and throughout scripture, these words of justice and righteousness are synonyms. They mean the same thing to God. Now when we sort of unpack that and we think about a God of justice, we have in our mind the the scales, right, of justice. And we want everything to sort of work out and equal, to be balanced. We would say, we want life to be fair. God, when he thinks about justice, he thinks about about that in terms of righteousness. He wants things to be right. He wants us to be right. That's God's standard, and it never changes. the, the, The problem is, or the issue is, is that, man, that's too high a standard to meet. In fact, when you go look look at Matthew chapter 5 still, and you kind of get to the end of Jesus' thought there with verse 44 and 45, he goes on in verse 46 to say, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect in verse 48. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we stopped this morning with verse 48 of Matthew chapter 5, if we stopped this morning with verse 17 of Malachi chapter 2, we would be ending with some bad news. Some awesome news that we serve a big, big God that he's amazing and holy and right and worth our worship. But some sort of distressing news that his standard never changes. And his standard is that same holiness and that same righteousness, that same perfection. The great news is that we don't have to end this morning with that first truth that God's standards never change and that we get to talk about truth number two that God makes a way for us to meet his standard Malachi chapter 3 says see I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come says the Lord almighty see I will send my messenger 
Uh, this is so cool because uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about this before, that Malachi comes at the end of the Old Testament, I think rightly so, because for 400 years there's sort of going to be this, this period of silence between God and his people. There won't be another prophet to Israel for 400 years. And God, though, is promising at the very beginning of those hundreds of years without a prophet, I'm going to send somebody. There's going to come somebody. There'll be a prophet who will prepare the way for the Lord. He, he's pointing to, to, to John the Baptist who will show up in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. You can go read that and you'll see that, that Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 is quoted in Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 7. And again in Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 27. And it shows up again in Matthew that, that God is pointing to John the Baptist who's preparing the way for Jesus who's preaching this message when he comes of what? Repentance. Right? He's preaching this message that God has set the standard, and we failed to meet them, and we've got to turn back to him. We've got to make our way back to that, those standards. We have to, we have to turn back and, and be reunited with him. But uh, verse 1 of chapter 3 in Malachi isn't simply cool because God is saying, hey, John the Baptist is on his way, but because who uh, of who John the Baptist is preparing the way for? Who will prepare the way before me, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. The answer to this question, how can we live up to this standard? How can we be perfect as our God, uh, of the Father, is perfect in heaven? How, is, how can that be? Uh, verse 2 goes on to kind of ask that question. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? God's standard doesn't change. And what every one of us realizes is, is that we fall short of that standard. Now, we kind of like to compare ourselves to other people. And truth be known, some of us are better at kind of meeting those sta that, his standard than others, huh? It's, it's this old story that I've told before, and it's a goofy story, and it's kind of a terrible story. But I think it, it illustrates this point so well. It's a story about these three guys, and they, they, came, they, they were out hiking, and they came to this ravine, and they wanted to jump across this ravine. They wanted to get across, and, and they decided, they looked at it, and they thought, there's no way we can make it. But the first guy, he was shaped a little bit like me. He, he kind of got back a ways, and he took off running as fast as he could. He got to the edge, and he jumped. He made it about halfway, and he plummeted. Done. The next guy, he was, he was an all-state basketball player in high school. You know, he's a little bit older, a little bit thicker, but he thought, hey, back in the day, maybe I could have done this. And so he, he gets back, he gets a running start, and he, he runs, and he leaps, and he makes it much further than the first guy. About three-quarters of the way. Kind of like the cartoons, his legs are still going, he stops in midair. Done. The last guy was an Olympic long jumper. He thought, these guys, they didn't, they didn't understand. They haven't prepared like me. They haven't trained like me. I'll be able to make it. He backs up, gets a running start, leaps. He makes it even further than the second guy. In fact, his toes make it to the other side of the ravine. He, he's almost there. 
and he can feel land, but when he does, he slips. And he's done, right? That's sort of how God's standards are when we read verses like Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect? Come on. I mean, we say, now next to what's-his-name down the block, I'm pretty good. Next to my, my brother, you should have heard what he said last week. I'm even better than him. Oh, so close. But the standard doesn't change. The standard doesn't change. Who can live up to that? Who can stand up to that? But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier as silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. See, what God's standard, if nothing else, teaches us is that every one of us is in desperate need of a Savior. Every one of us needs help. We need refined. We need the launderer soap. I, I uh, have spent the summer at baseball games and softball games and uh, with my kids and with my family. And there's a conversation that always happens. And, and I promise you, if you're at, at a ball field with youth sports long enough and you're sitting in that audience and you're watching ball games and there are all these white baseball pants, you know, that are being played in, then you will hear, the, hear this conversation typically between mothers, not always, but typically between mothers, this conversation about how to get white baseball pants clean. And everybody has, they sort of have this trick. You know, I've heard things like, you need to take them to the car wash and use the power washer thing, and that will do the trick, get the white baseball pants clean. You know, my wife buys this special bar of soap. I don't, I don't know what it, I'm pretty ignorant about many things, and this is just one of them. I don't know what it's called. I don't know where she buys it. You know, I know it doesn't look like any of the other soap. It doesn't smell minty fresh. It's just this kind of big, thick bar. And she's like, this is the special baseball pants soap. And, and we keep that. And then she scrubs the baseball pants with this special bar of soap. And, and then they're more clean than they were before. Right? I, I've experienced this on a, on a tournament trip with my son. And baseball pants came back. And I'm cheap. And so I've spent, you know... 350 in the laundromat already to wash them one day and the next day I'm out of quarters and so I think I'm just going to scrub these up I'll just use this little bar it's a little much smaller the free bar of soap in the in the hotel and I'll just say this is the magic you know bar of soap and I'll try to in the scrub and scrub and scrub and all I realize is that I can't do it I need help all right I I need the 350 for the washing machine all right I need somebody else, something else to do the work to clean those things up because I can't do it. And I know it's true of baseball pants, and I for sure know it's true of my life. That I'm in desperate need of a Savior. If I can't stand up for that day of coming, that I have to have somebody stand up for me, to clean me up, to refine me, that's the promise that God makes, that Jesus is on his way, 
and that he provides that help, that he, he purifies the Levites. So the Levites, you think, who are the Levites? They're the priests. Who are the priests? They run the temple. Who's the temple in the New Testament? It's the church. It's us. He cleans us up enough. When we say yes to him, we're invited to be a part of his team. We're a part of his family. And we're righteous in the eyes of God. He's he's cleaned us up. Jesus has made that way for our offerings to be acceptable. Have they changed? Maybe not initially. You know, we're going to grow more and more like him. And his spirit's going to make us more and more like him from the inside out. But at least initially, they're still acceptable in God's eyes because he sees Jesus and not us. God has made a way for us to meet his standard. He's done it on his own for us. Truth number three is that God will judge us. Look at verse five. You know, this is kind of the whole picture of God, right? This is for sure the part of that picture that sometimes we don't like to look at. So I'll come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. There's some good news here as well in in verse 5 of Malachi chapter 3. The good news is that our God is a personal God, that he will come near to us. Now, sort of the scary news, the troublesome news, is he's coming near to us to judge us, right? And there's a whole list of people that he'll judge. And and basically, when you look at that list, you go back to that idea of loving God and loving others. And this is the standard that he set, because that list is just how well we care for the least of these in this world. How honest are we in our approach to God? And how does that lived out in our approach to others? He wants us to care for the least of these, to love them as he, like he loves us. I'll judge these folks who do not fear me. Now this idea of fearing God is, you know, we could minimize this, and I think we do when we say, what God really means is that he wants us to have a healthy respect for him. I mean, hey, that's true. God wants us to respect him. But God wants us to understand that that full picture of God, that complete picture of God is of a big, big God. Is of an awesome God. It's the same God who who said, you can't look at me in the face. You better put your head in this rock as I pass by. He's that same God. He's a God who says, I'm coming near to you to judge you. I've got a buddy who says, what a terrible picture of God. What a terrible picture of God who who is a God who would say, fear me. And I I, I just had a conversation with him and I said, you and I are on the same page. We we say we want to serve a God who loves the world so much that he put us here. He sent his son, made a way for us to know him, and then he's placed us here to be the hands and feet of his son in this world. And we're supposed to love everyone like he loves us. And my my question was, just look around and how's that going? See, I've got a really high view of people. I think if we got any group of people together, 
nearly any group of people, and we ask them, what, do, you want, do you want to help people or do you, would you rather hurt people? I, I think the far and away, right, everyone responds, man, I want to help. I don't want to be hurtful. It's a small, small group of people in this world who would answer, I don't care. But we look around and we say, man, how is that going? And I wonder if it's we've ignored, if perhaps part of the reason is we've ignored this part of our picture of God. That yes, God loves us more than he loves anything. We're the pinnacle of his creation. He's made a way for us to know him. He's left paradise to die on a cross, to be buried in a tomb. Love doesn't get a better picture than that. But he's an awesome, big, powerful, righteous, holy God. He promises that he'll come again. And justice. And if fear motivates us to live more like him, reminds me of my daughter when she was learning to drive she got in the car the first time one of the first times and said okay put your foot on the brake and started the key and she put it in, in reverse and we were maybe on a hill or whatever and and she said okay it's the time to let off the gas and she let off she let off the brake rather didn't even press the gas and you know the car started to move and this freaked her out she said what is going on and she stopped the car and jumped out of the car almost before she put on the brake and put it in park again. She was so, I didn't expect it to move. I'm like, honey, it's big. It's going to move. You have to honor how big and how powerful that car is. You know, and now my daughter, she, she gets in the car and she drives all over. And I, I, a part of me wishes she was a little closer to that person who kind of freaked out when she left the, her foot just off the brake because now I know that foot is going on the gas. Right? We've all experienced that, huh? From sort of fear to acceptance to thinking we can control this. We can handle this. And maybe in so many of our areas, a little fear might be a good thing. And our relationship with God, to remember that he is a big, awesome, holy, righteous, pictures that we see that don't tell the full story. We were uh, on vacation and my, my daughter Lacey, we went to Washington, D.C. and my daughter Lacey, she, the whole time she said, I want to take a picture with the Washington Monument and I want to reach out like I'm touching the top of the Washington Monument. The most touristy thing, well, one of the most touristy, because, you know, we rode a bus. We actually got on a bus and rode around to these, so that's pretty touristy. But one of the most touristy thing we ever did was stand, you know, and find a spot where I said, okay, hold your hand up like this. And then as people are walking by, I'm like, no, a little further over to the left. And okay, now back up a little higher and now to the right. And people are looking at us like we are weirdos from Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Until finally we get this and we get a little, see, I can touch the top of the Washington Monument. And that's a really cute picture. But when you walk up sort of near the Washington Monument and you look up at it, 
And you realize how big it is. You realize how small you are. You know that this picture doesn't for sure tell the whole story. Well, as we read Scripture, if we believe God to be the God of Scripture, we see a little bit more, a little bit more complete picture of Him. We realize that He is a holy God, that He is a just God, that He is a loving God who has made a way to meet His standards. And all we have to do is say yes to the gift of His Son, Jesus. Let's stand and worship Him right now.